0: And that's exactly what Steve Levitt has done. It's, his work has been a ever seemingly never-ending string of great ideas, which he's written up. And um, um, his work, uh, also as an economist, we tend to put people into boxes and give them you know, He's a labor economist. He's a macroeconomist. I won't do that with Steve, because he's worked in so many dif- different areas of microeconomics, and it doesn't do justice to his work. Um, so let me just say that the American Economic Association recognized the quality of his work uh, by awarding him the John, John Bates Clark Medal uh, in 2003. The Clark Medal is given to the most outstanding academic professor in economics under the age of 40. It's given every other year, uh, so you compare it to the Nobel Prize, which is usually given to a bunch of people every year. And you can kind of figure out the relative odds of the two. Um, I, as I said, I don't have much else to say that Steve couldn't say much, much better, so I'll just hand it over to you.
1: So, so looking around, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, somebody's charging the wrong price for this lecture because it's just... We could have done there's a lot of money left on the table if uh, somebody would have, would have thought to raise, raise the price. Uh, and also must not much, there also must not be much to do in Princeton uh, tonight. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the, the crowd is certainly a lot bigger than the crowd the first time I came and, and talked at Princeton. I was in my first year after I graduated from MIT and I was at the Harvard Society Fellows, and I had uh, never spoken outside of Cambridge. And Howard Rosenthal, who was a professor in political science, uh, asked me if I'd come down and and give a talk. And he said, come down uh, the day before, I'm gonna set up a whole slate of meetings for you. I know there are so many people who wanna meet you in the economics department, it's gonna be a wonderful time. So I took the train down the the night before and I stayed at Howard's house. And uh, and, uh, in the morning he said, well, I had a little trouble with your schedule. It's not as full as I wanted it to be. And I said, oh, that's OK. And he said, I was only able to get one person to talk to you all day. And <laughs> so that meeting's at about 1130. Otherwise, you're, you're on your own. Enjoy the day in Princeton. So sat alone in a room for, for six hours. And he was nervous, you know, building up this anticipation of my first seminar uh, at, a, at an institution away from home. And, and the one professor, so this one guy, Ken Rogoff, who's now at Harvard. Uh, it was very nice to me and talked to me for half an hour. And otherwise, I was completely alone. And the time came where I'd been in this room now for six hours. And Howard came and knocked on the door and said, it's time. And we got up. and We went to the seminar room. And um, we were there a few minutes early. And we were the first two there. And the, the clock kind of ticked by. It was now five minutes after. And it was still just Howard Rosenthal and myself sitting in this room. And then it was ten minutes after. And finally, fifteen, and we were still alone. I said, "Listen, Howard, you, you already read the paper. How about you and I just go get a beer and he said, "No no i I'm, I'm sure that people are coming and uh, About four people came in at about twenty after and, and we started the seminar and uh, so I was giving my seminar and then uh, and then about you know maybe fifteen minutes later, one other guy comes in, and uh, this other guy starts asking these really these really smart questions. And I'm thinking, you know, who is this guy? Who is this smart guy? And, and it turned out, to just Hank Farber. He was sitting here in the front row. And and, uh, and it actually made the trip very worthwhile because Hank gave me a lot of great ideas on a paper. And But the, the cap on the day was that after the talk, uh, we were walking out, and Howard Rosenthal was talking to, I guess, one other faculty member from political sciences showed up. And uh, Howard Rosenthal said to him, you know... This other paper he has is much better than the one he presented today. And that was Howard's appraisal of what had happened uh, in, in the seminar. And that was my first trip to Princeton. So my second, my second trip to Princeton is when I was on the job market. And, uh, and uh, I, I, I came and uh, I'm going to spare Orly Ashenfelter sitting here too. I'm going to spare Orly from what he's did, what he did in that talk, uh, which I thought was uh, uh, interesting. But more, even more interesting was... Uh, that, so as soon as we got the, into the seminar room, uh, someone decided to turn out the lights, uh, which I thought was kind of strange, and immediately almost everyone in the room went to sleep. I, I think there was not a person in the room who did not sleep at some point. And all this was fine, but, um, but Mike Rothschild, who might even be here today, so Mike Rothschild was a dean of, of the um, of the policy school, and so he was there, and he had brought his dog. I think his dog's name was Rosie. And so um, Rosie was much more alert than most of the faculty members and seemed to be enjoying the seminar much more so uh, Rosie, about maybe half an hour into it got up and came to the front of the room and began sniffing me okay? and so everyone turned to Mike to ask him you know, why he wasn't doing anything about his dog and he was sound asleep and nobody wanted to wake him up and so uh, I, I eventually was able to shoo Rosie back to her, her, her spot and, and the, seminar, the seminar went on um, there are, uh, you know, it's funny because I, many of you probably don't know, but, but I, I almost came to Princeton. It was back, um, back before Ben Bernanke got uh, demoted from head of the department to uh, chairman of the department to chairman of the Fed, uh, back in those days when Ben and, and um, it's funny because it's one of the few decisions in my life where I've ever been completely indifferent, right? Every major decision I've ever had to make where to go to college. So my father told me, You can either go to Harvard. I either pay for Harvard or the University of Minnesota, and those were only two choices. So when I got into Harvard, I went to Harvard, and uh, um, you know, in my first job, there's never. But it was it was interesting. I was basically essentially indifferent between Princeton and Chicago, and and ended up staying in Chicago essentially because of money. That Chicago offered me more money, and I was I was told by Bo that I had to mention that so it would help him in his negotiations with uh, future (laughs) um, future faculty, but. uh, but you know it's funny because I have a I have a sort of a sense of regret every time I come back to Princeton. I it's a, a wonderful time here, it's a beautiful city and and it's and it's sort of this path not taken and how uh, how my life would have been different. So it's uh it's interesting to 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 ponder that. But let me stop let me stop talking about that. I mean, here, you know, it's it's kind of you to all come out and and um you know the the kind of economics I do is not the kind of economics that most economists do. It's it's asking the ridiculous questions that no self-respecting economist would be caught dead asking, like whether the name you give your kid matters for their their their, their outcomes, or you know how a crack selling gang works, or you know whether real estate agents are ripping you off. It's it's a set of, the worst one's probably the sumo wrestlers, you know, and writing cheating and pseudo wrestlers, and with with teachers. It's the kind of questions that you know it's not the kind of questions that you dream about writing about when you when you enter graduate school or when you're, you're growing up. And uh, so how did I come to be this, this kind of economist? And it, it wasn't really by choice. Um, they, they did a survey of academic economists recently. And in this survey, they asked, what is the single most important attribute to succeed as an economist? And almost, well, so 2% of the economists said a good working knowledge of the economy was the most important thing to be a a successful (laughs) economist, which says something about about our discipline. Almost 70% said proficiency at math was the single most important thing. But my problem is that I've never been accused of being good at math by anyone. And uh, I think the story that best brings this to life is that I recently had my 20-year high school reunion. And I I went back, and at my high school reunion, my high school calculus teacher showed up. A guy named Mr. Drexel. He was by now, he must have been at least 80, because he was at least 60 when he taught me. And I was very surprised to see him at my reunion. And just as a a cruel joke, I went up to him, and I introduced myself, and I said, I'm Steve Levitt. You know, you taught me calculus 20 years ago. And it was sad, because, of course, he he looked blankly at me. I could see him trying to think of anything he could recollect about this mediocre student that he had taught 20 years earlier. And finally, I kind of like saw this light go off, you know, this light sparkle come into his eye. And he said, wait a second, didn't, did you get a two on the calculus AP exam? <laughs> and I said, as a matter of fact, I did. And he said, that's the lowest score that any student I ever taught got. I remember you, I remember you. And And I didn't really do anything to change that in between the time I graduated from high school and the time I went back to get a PhD. I took one semester of college calculus. They retested me. So I went to Harvard, and they retest you. They test you before before the first semester starts. And I did so badly on the retest that I actually got placed into Calculus 1A uh, at Harvard, the beginning calculus, even though I'd already taken a year. And that was the last math class that I ever took. And so I went, I I went through the rest of college, I worked for a few years as a consultant, and then I got this bright idea that I was going to go back and and get a PhD in economics. And I was already kind of an economist at heart, and I believed in markets. And my view was the faculty at MIT wouldn't let me into the the, the program, the PhD program, if I didn't have the right preparation to succeed. Okay, And only later, when I was on the other side of the admissions Task did I realize how completely crazy that that faith had been because the, the you know what what people decide it's just not at all clear what what the decisions are to let people in, but I was optimistic and I showed up at MIT and that optimism lasted I don't know you know like ten minutes into my first lecture as the professor scribbled up on the board these equations that were loaded with with D's okay and I, I remembered enough of calculus to know that a D stood for a derivative that was good so I was writing in my notebook, but. But along the way, I got this really haunting feeling because the close, when I looked closely at the board, it seemed like there were these two different kinds of Ds floating around. And I was just writing down D, D, D in my notebook, and, and I thought it was just bad penmanship, and I was just going along. But the more I looked at it, I've always been good at pattern recognition, What I realized with some of these Ds, the Ds that went straight up and down were in one part of the equation and the curly ones were always in a different part and I thought there might be something here I'm not aware of. And so I turned to the guy next to me and I said I said, Hey, is there a difference between the curly D and the straight D? And he turned back to me and he said, You are in so much trouble. he was right. I mean, I was in so much trouble. I didn't know. I did not know what was going on. And, and, and I managed to pass my classes mostly because it was too hard to fail people at MIT. It was a lot of trouble to fail people at MIT. And so they let me in. And, and, and so I got through the first semester, and I just knew it was a bad situation. And so I went back home to Minneapolis where I grew up, and I pondered my fate. And I, I, had, I had been a consultant, and being a consultant was very hard work. And I found it very unpleasant work, and I really did not want to have to go back to doing that. Because the obvious thing to do would have been just to quit, just to, just to stop, to drop out of the program. Um, but, you know, I, I, I talked to my father, and, um, and my father told me a story that was uh, intended to, to hearten me. And this is a completely true story. I, pretty much everything I'm going to tell you today is completely true, including this story. <laughs> and so, so my father is a doctor. He's a medical researcher. And he said, you know, when I was just getting started in medical research, uh, I was in the same situation you were in. He said, my, my mentor, a guy who named Franz Ingelfinger, who um, ended up being later the, the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, was my father's mentor when he was doing a fellowship. And he said, Inglefinger pulled me aside one day. And he said, Levitt, you don't have much talent for medical research. And my father kind of shrugged his shoulders. And then this guy, the mentor, went on to say, but there's one area of medicine that's so devoid of research that even some of your limited talents might be able to make a difference. <laughs> so my father said, well, what, what area is that? And the guy said, intestinal gas. <laughs> so my father actually took this advice to heart, and he has devoted his entire career the study of intestinal gas. He's the world's (laughs) foremost expert in intestinal gas. And indeed, when I was in high school, when I was in high school, GQ did a profile of my father and the headline was The King of Farts. Okay? (laughs) So my dad's advice was just figure out what it is in economics that everybody is interested in but all the other researchers are too embarrassed to study it, and that's how you're going to find your way in uh, economics. <laughs> and I think my father's proud of me. I think that's exactly what I've managed to do, is to sort of replicate his success as the king of farts with, with, with free economics. So the apple uh, did, not, uh, did not fall far from the tree. So so let me, let me just tell you a couple stories. Uh, I want to leave some time for, for questions uh, as well, a couple stories of, of, of some new research that I'm doing. So one of, the, um, you know, one of the perks of writing a book that, that sells a lot of copies, especially in this case, somebody decided it was a business book, right? So if you've read it, there's nothing about business. The closest thing to business in this book is about how, how crack gangs uh, look like McDonald's, right? And so, but somehow somebody decided this was a business book. And, and the greatest thing about writing a best-selling business book is suddenly uh, every CEO thinks that he needs you to come in and, uh, and, and, and give give him advice or her advice. And so I get a lot of calls and they say, what do you charge for consulting? And I say, uh, actually, I do it for free um, because if you're willing to give me data to write academic papers I, I, and the project is interesting, I'll do it for free. And when the CEO is here, my price, they're always very eager to, to go forward with with, the, with this deal. And so... Uh, I've been able to talk with uh, a number of of companies, and and what's what, what's interesting is how ill suited I am for actually advising companies. Because if you think about uh, kind of the way, it took me a while to come and understand this about what the difference was between business and academics. In in academics, to succeed, you have to be utterly convincing, right? So that a good academic paper basically takes a hypothesis and proves it beyond any reasonable doubt so that no critic can say that there's some other hypothesis to explain it. Okay, in order to do that, you have to usually bite off little tiny questions that aren't as interesting as the fundamental question you'd really like to answer. Right, so, so I would really like to know how to cut government corruption, and I end up writing about sumo wrestlers, because okay, that's what I can be convincing on. Um, but in business, it turns out, be totally different. It, it took, I, I don't know why it took me so long to recognize it, but in business, basically, what you need to, is to do the answer to the important questions. And there is no critic there. You only have to answer them halfway well, and if you can even, the only person you have to, you either have to convince no one or convince your boss, and so there's a very different standard. Now, what's interesting is, somewhat counterintuitively, I think, as I reflected on it, to be totally convincing you have to be very simple, right? So it's something that's complex. is almost never convincing to a large group of people. So I, so I can build a complicated model with 20 variables and calibrate it, and it might be right, but, but there was always someone who said, well, the assumption you made on variable 14 was a bad assumption. Uh, and so it's, I've always tried to adopt the simplest possible ways to answer questions that I can. And what's funny is in business, that's not really the view of the world. And so um, what, what's interesting, when I go to a big company is invariably... Uh, what they'll do is they'll show me uh, some very fancy thing they developed. Like I, I was at a big electronics retailer, and uh, and they they brought me in and uh, and they said we want to show you this. We got this fantastic report done by an outside consultant. It cost us five hundred thousand dollars, and we're going to completely revamp our marketing strategy as a result of it. Because what we what this consultant found was that. Uh, our TV ads per dollar spend are four times as effective as the Sunday newspaper inserts that have been the bulk of our spending on advertising. And I said, well, that's great. You know, how did they, how did they do it? And, and the reaction was, well, we, we don't know how they did it. It's complicated. And here's this appendix if you want to look at this, but look at these great pictures. It's all about the great colorful pictures they had shown with big bars and little bars that had convinced them that they should, uh, they should change their budget. Now, having studied advertising some, I was deeply suspicious, right? Because there's almost no question harder than figuring out whether advertising works or not, right? It's very hard. It's a complicated world. It's hard to figure it out. So they had no idea how it had happened, how they had come to this answer. But So I started asking the kinds of simple questions, which I think are the kind of right questions to ask. So I said to them, how uh, do you advertise in a lot of newspapers? And they said, we advertise in essentially every major newspaper in the country. And I said... Uh, how many weeks of the year do you advertise in the newspaper? And they said, we advertise every single week of the year in every newspaper in the country. Okay? So it got me thinking, pretty hard to figure out whether your advertising works or not if you advertise in every newspaper in the country every week of the year. Uh, what are you going to compare it to? How, how do you know what would have happened if you hadn't done it? Okay? And I said, let me guess. I'm guessing you don't advertise every week of the year on TV. And they said, no, our TV ads fluctuate way up and down. I said, let me take another guess. I bet you do a lot of advertising right around Thanksgiving and in the weeks leading up to Christmas. And they said, yeah, absolutely. And I said, I think I know how these consultants figured out that your TV ads worked. It's because they ran a regression, as, as economists do, and they found that in the weeks that immediately followed your advertising on TV, your sales were much higher than in the weeks where you didn't advertise. And they had completely, in my conjecture, missed the point that you're advertising on TV because you know Christmas is coming and Christmas is and your sales are going up at Christmas almost unrelated to your advertising. So I said if you give me the data, I'd be I'd be happy to look at it. I really doubt that you should be completely revamping your, your marketing. They gave me the data, and sure enough, with with the same kind of regression techniques that economists always use and that these consultants use, I could get the return on investment of of TV advertising to go from $100 in revenue for every dollar they spent to negative just by controlling for dummy variables for the weeks of the year. That essentially, when you did what made most sense, you got a negative value on on their advertising on TV. It wasn't helping at all. might have even been hurting. Uh, Now, I went to them, and told them this and and uh they weren't pleased they weren't happy about it (laughs) and they said well how would you so how would you if this isn't right how would you figure it out and i said well the simplest way is just to do an experiment just don't advertise in some newspapers some of the time and you know maybe don't advertise in some markets on tv and advertise in others and just see what happened randomization is incredibly powerful too it's a gold standard of of figuring out causality and uh and they said, we, no way. I mean, the sales force will go nuts if we, if we pull the inserts from some of the newspapers. They said, you know, one time our summer intern who was in charge of Pittsburgh just forgot to put the inserts in to like half of the city of Pittsburgh for three months. And you cannot imagine the fear that that caused. And I said, what happened to the sales in Pittsburgh when he forgot to do that? <laughs> and they looked around the room and these were otherwise smart people and said, oh my God. That's a great idea. We never thought to look at that. <laughs> okay, I, This is one of the most successful electronic retailers in the world, and uh, and uh, and the incredible thing. And then they looked at it. They did look at it, then, and it turns out they found no impact on their sales in Pittsburgh from from not having it. Now, what I found so interesting about this is that you know this this you know lazy MBA who ended up with not doing their job and blowing it actually turned out to be much more valuable to this firm than the $500,000 economists who got hired as consultants. They could have learned that they did learn a lot more about their business from a, a mistake than they learned from this this low-quality economic analysis that had been done. Now, what's interesting, in the end, uh, they still went ahead and revamped their marketing uh, in spite of this. And so uh, you can, I literally cannot turn on the TV without seeing one of the ads for this company. And, and, and my, my very... Uh, likely conjecture is that you're going to see um, a, this, if I could tell t- for good reason I'm not telling you the name of this firm but my guess is they're going to miss their profit numbers uh, by roughly the amount of that they're spending uh, that they've upped their their TV budget for this year. Now I found that the one thing which has been common across all of my experiences uh, with advising businesses is that they have never once taken my advice on anything that I've told them and. <laughs> And I really, honestly, I think the reason is that I've, I've charged the wrong price, right? By giving away my services, I think they feel not at all obligated to listen to what I say. And so they just figure if, if this guy's giving it away, it can't be any good. Uh, and, and I've had no success whatsoever. And I've had one, but there's one counterexample uh, to this of where I've actually helped a business person uh, make a lot of money. And uh, I was actually talking to a crowd of uh, investment bankers. This was probably now, uh, must be six months ago. And in the Q&A session, they asked, someone asked, well, what are you working on now? And so I, I told them about a project I'm working on, which is a project um, with this guy, Sudhir Venkatesh, who, who I did the work on gangs, crack gangs. He eventually got too old to hang out with the crack gangs, and he got tired of being shot at, and he got married, and he just decided he wanted to do it. So instead, he hooked up with a bunch of um, pimps and prostitutes on the south side of Chicago and convinced them that they, um, that they let us put our trackers uh, out on the street corner. So out on the street corner with the prostitutes, we put people with, with um, clipboards and uh, data sheets. And after the prostitute did a trick, they'd come back and they'd report everything about that trick um, to our trackers. Now... Um, It's actually been, it's been an interesting, it's not even the point, this is a complete diversion from the point of my story, but anyway, so this, the project has turned out to be very interesting in in a lot of ways. One is that um, uh, it's, I used to think that being a drug dealer was the worst job in America, but it is completely clear to me now that being a street prostitute is far, far, far worse, just the, how bad it is, but but there's certain things that I think you learn about the inner city that you just can't imagine if you... Without, I mean, just through examples. So one of them is about 7% of all the tricks that the prostitutes do are um, are freebies to the police to avoid arrest. So the police are basically, many of them on-duty police officers, are demanding sex from the prostitutes and, or, or else they will arrest them. Uh, another thing, it turns out that the local guy who runs the YMCA, his budget's pretty tight. So he's worked out a deal with the prostitutes where he, he lets them come in and, and have sex in the rooms at the YMCA, in return for twenty percent of the uh, of the wages that they're earning from from doing the tricks. Okay, so it's like things that you learn uh, uh, out of this study that I think are going to be ultimately i think very very interesting. Okay, but so I explained a little bit of this work, and uh, and so later that night it turned out that one of the investment bankers, this was in Chicago, had uh, made plans to have a date uh, a date with a three hundred dollar an hour call girl uh, in downtown Chicago. Okay. And it just turned out that she happened to be reading Freakonomics uh, at the time and that she did her tricks out of her, out of her apartment. And so it was sitting there on the coffee table. The book was sitting on the coffee table when this investment banker shows up for his, his date with his prostitute. And so in order to ingratiate himself with the prostitute, he says, hey, I just saw that guy speak today. And he actually is doing a new study collecting data on prostitution. And, uh, <laughs> and so the next day, the prostitute writes me and says, I have a Palm Pilot loaded with data. I wonder you'd be interested in knowing anything about my client. <laughs> and so, of course, I said I was very interested. And she said, well, uh, why don't we meet for brunch? Okay, And that was fine. But I had to then convince my wife. Uh, and we have four young kids, ages six and under. And it was going to be on a Saturday, and I'm supposed to be home. And I had to say to her, well, you know, I, I have... Um, i got to go meet a prostitute downtown. We're going to talk about research projects. Uh, (laughs) And she went along with it. And and, uh, I went and met this woman. This woman was fascinating. turns out she had a college degree, and she had worked as a computer programmer at a Fortune 500 company and was making $80,000 a year and decided that being a prostitute would be a better job. So she quit her job, and became a high-priced call girl, set up her own webpage, and was uh, now making about $250,000 a year, working about 10 hours a week, and couldn't have been happier about, uh, about the turn that her life had taken. And so... You know, I've been working with all these companies, and, uh, and one of the big things I've been struggling with with companies is trying to figure out what the right price to, to set is, okay? How, how do you set prices? And so I was asking her a lot of the same questions I was asking the CEOs about, about setting price. I was trying to figure out what you should charge on the right price. And, you know, you can imagine I wasn't making much headway. And, uh, and um, so, you know, in order to figure out the right price, you need to figure out what the, you know, what the shape of the demand curve is for the person. So, um, so here I am trying to figure, it doesn't sound right, but I was trying to figure out the shape of this prostitute's demand curve. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and finally I hit on the right question to ask, and I said to her, she had a dedicated line that, that people called into, clients called into when they wanted a date. And I said, how do you feel when the phone rings on this dedicated line? And she said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Are you happy?" And she said, "Well, she thought about it." I said, "No, I guess I'm like, I'm completely indifferent." And I said, "Well, if you're indifferent, you're not charging at a high enough price, right? Because if you, because you have market power, you want to be charging a markup so that if you could get more business at that price, uh, it should make you happy. So if you're not happy, it means you're not charging at a high enough price." And you can imagine this kind of dazed look that came over her face when I was explaining about marginal, you know, markups and marginal cost pricing and stuff. Uh, And so I didn't see her for a few months, and I teach a class at Chicago on the um, economics of crime. And one of the last lectures of the semester I give is on economics of of prostitution. And it hit me that who better to give the lecture on prostitution than a prostitute? And... uh, (laughs) So I called her up, and she said, no, I don't want to give you, I don't want to give you a lecture. I've never really done public speaking. I'm you know, not well-educated, da-da-da. And the thing I know, though, is that one thing that economists and prostitutes have in common is they will put a price on anything, right? It's just a matter of getting to the right price. And so eventually I convinced her that if she, I'd pay her hourly wage if she would come in and, uh, and teach my class. Okay? And so she agreed. She came down. Turns out, she gives a great lecture, a fantastic lecture. And when I asked my students, it turns out that one third of the students thought that um, that, that that were there thought that this was the best, um, uh, the 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 single best lecture they had seen uh, in their entire time at the University of Chicago, which tells you something <laughs> about the quality of uh, of uh, of how we uh, uh, of how we you know what the professors are doing at the university. Um, But along the way, we did Q&A, and and in this Q&A, someone asked her how much she charges, and she says $400 an hour. And I get really mad, because I had talked to her just a month or two earlier, and she had been charging $300 an hour, and and when we had bargained over price, we had never actually mentioned dollars. We just said her hourly wage. And I'm thinking, you just cannot trust prostitutes at all, (laughs) because she's like lying to my students about her wage, she get an extra $100 out of me. It's coming out of my own pocket. It's not the kind of thing that you can easily charge through a research budget, $400 <laughs> for prostitute to teach your lecture. And so, so I'm like fuming. And the next student raises his hand and says, well, um, how, did you, how, did you, how do you decide what to charge? And she turns to me, and she gets this huge smile on her face. <laughs> and she says, well, I was with Professor Levitt, And and he convinced me my services were far more valuable than the $300 I used to charge. And so I raised my price to $400, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I have put... I put five thousand dollars in the bank. I wouldn't have otherwise, and I just—I'm just so grateful for uh, that. I that I got got to meet him. So uh, let me tell you. Uh, I'm trying to think what, uh, in light of time. Let me tell you. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm the most overexposed economist in the world. So let me tell you a story about one of my colleagues who who deserves a lot more exposure, but but doesn't get it. Uh, so. Um, a lot of economics is about how, how various people fall prey to conventional wisdom and essentially stop thinking and go along with whatever somebody tells them, uh, even though in retrospect, it should be obvious that they're doing the wrong thing. Now, the, the, the point, the story I want to tell next is about how academic economists can fall prey in just the same way to that sort of conventional wisdom thinking, okay? And And uh, I have also talked very briefly about experiments and how great experiments are and and how they're the gold standard of of, of scientific methods. Um, And so this story is actually gonna have a somewhat ironic twist, because it's it's about economists doing experiments, okay? And economists don't do very many experiments. In the history of economics, it hasn't really been uh, uh, standard for economists to do experiments in the lab. And part of the reason is that the kinds of questions economists wanna answer are often not amenable to um, doing lab experiments. So for instance, I'm very interested in crime, right? And one of the big questions I've tried to tackle is do prisons reduce crime? So it turns out in everyday data, it's not that easy to answer that because when crime gets really bad, everybody demands that we lock up more prisoners and build more prisons. And so you tend actually to see that prisons and crime often in the data move together. When crime's going up, the number of prisoners is going up, even though we think that more prisoners might have a causal impact of reducing crime. So the right way to figure this out right, would be an experiment. Right? So if I could take a, a dozen cities or a dozen states and randomly assign one set of cities, and I would uh, force the prison system to let out, say, 10% of the prisoners in that jurisdiction. And then I'd take this other city, and I'd force them to lock up 10% of people who wouldn't be locked up otherwise. Okay, these were bad guys, but guys who weren't quite bad enough to lock up. And I'd come back three or four years later, look at crime, and I think I'd have a very good idea of the causal impact of, of locking up those prisoners and recently releasing them on crime. Now, every time I submit this grant to the National Science Foundation, they turn it down, right? I can't get anybody to let me do this. And so that's, I think, part of the reason why economists don't do experiments. But what kind of experiments do economists do? Well, it turns out on issues like altruism. Are, um, are people altruistic? Do they have pro-social preferences? Do they care about other people? That's the kind of subject you think you could probably study pretty effectively in a lab. And so uh, economists have done enormous amounts of research, probably, I don't know, 500 studies might have been done, that try to figure out whether people are altruistic. Okay, so economists basically tend to believe that people are not altruistic, right? So our basic models are built on the idea that people are self-interested. I mean, even back a lot of Adam Smith, it's like the, the roots of economics are that people do the best for themselves, and more or less, under most situations, that works out for everybody. But then these experimental economists came along and they came up with a set of results which repeatedly flew in the face of this, of, of this, this basic uh, view of economists. And so, so w- this, the simplest version is uh, what's called the dictator game. And m- maybe some of you have been yourself subjects uh, in a dictator game experiment. And it's so simple I can explain it in, in 15 seconds. You bring two people, usually college students, into a lab. You go in different doors, you'll never see each other. It's a one-shot game. One of them is the dictator. The dictator is given, say, $10, a roll of quarters, and is told, this is your money to keep. Or if you want, you can give as much or as little of that to this stranger on the other side of the door. And then that's the end of the experiment. You go home with your money. The stranger goes home with his money, uh, her money, and that's, that's it. Okay. So let's just for fun, let's see what kind of research subjects you all are. So faced with this, you're the dictator. You've got $10 given to you. How much do you pass through to that stranger on the other side? So who, who passes all 10? Yep, there's always one person in the room who will pass all 10. It's exactly one person. I always say. Now, It turns out in the lab, nobody ever passes all 10. Uh, it's very rare for someone to pass all 10. Uh, how about five? Five turns out to be a very common number, that something like 15% of the people will do five. And, and most of the people do one, two, three, four, somewhere in that range. Who gives zero, anybody? And how many of you economists? Usually it's economists are the ones who give zero. Uh, uh, and uh, I'll kind of say the other thing. I, so I did, I asked the same question when I was talking to a group from Goldman Sachs. And it was amazing because not a single hand went up in the room. And I thought, oh, I guess the Goldman Sachs guys were too good to respond to my question until I got to zero. And then in unison, they all put their hand up. It was amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that actually speaks to the point I'm going to make. Okay, so... so you come up with $3 It's roughly the answer you get from these experiments that people give away about $3 or 30% of, of, of the money that they're given as a dictator. Okay. And this has been used as very powerful evidence by economists saying We need to rewrite our models to, to build in these, these behavioral biases, the idea that people care about others. And uh, even a guy named Matt Rabin, a great economist is, got the Clark medal for his work on building fairness into, into models of, of economic behavior. Uh, so so my colleague John List, who uh, Princeton had the good taste to make him an offer last year and fortunately he came to Chicago instead of Princeton, uh, I, think, uh, I think this time Princeton actually paid more than Chicago, but we won anyway, so there's been some progress made on that front, but uh, um, he was explaining this research to me, he's an experimental economist, and I said to him, that's all great, um, what do you make of this? I said, when I was living in Boston for a decade I took the the, uh, uh, the subway back and forth to work and to school every day. And um, the strange thing is, in those 10 years, not one guy ever came up to me on the subway, opened up his wallet, said, hey, I got 10 bucks. Can I give you three of them? <laughs> right? In the lab, people are incredibly altruistic. But on the subway, people didn't seem so altruistic. And I said, what do you make of that? And John listed to the smart guy, and he said, well, let me give that some thought. He came back two days later, and I said, I think I know the answer. Okay, And he went out to do an experiment. Okay, so, so first he replicated the result on his subjects that uh, you could get this, this three, $3 of giving and found that on the undergraduates he was looking at, you got the same results. And then he made one little tiny tweak to this experiment, which had been done hundreds of times. He tweaked it in a way no one had tweaked it before. Okay, and he tweaked it in a way that shouldn't matter at all. He, instead of making the game, you can give away $10 or nothing, he, he made it so you also, if you wanted to, you could steal a dollar from the guy on the other side of the wall, okay? Now, why should this not matter? Well, it shouldn't matter because if you preferred giving $3 away to a stranger to giving nothing, you almost certainly prefer giving $3 to stealing a dollar from them, right? So the only person who should be affected are the people who are right at zero. The people right at zero are constrained. They might very well want to steal that dollar, okay? So then he ran the experiment, and something funny happened, okay? The people who used to give five well, they're now pretty much disappear, and they're giving two or three. The people who were giving a dollar, two dollars, they now give zero. And predictably, the people who gave zero, they steal the dollar. They do follow the economic <laughs> principle, and they do steal the dollar from the, from, from the other person. Okay? But it's strange, right? So the giving has gone from three dollars down to a dollar on average, just by this little change in the game. So then he went a little further. And he said, well, what if we made the game you can give up to all of your $10 or you can steal the full $10 from the guy on the other side? So now it's symmetric. So what happened? Suddenly, these incredibly altruistic people who for, for decades of economic research have been giving away 30% of their endowments, uh, on average, are stealing about $3 from the guys on the other side of the wall. They've now become people who are stealing 30% of the endowment. And, and the most popular number of all, it turns out, is to steal $5, okay? And so what's going on? What's going on is that the people were never giving the money in the first place because they cared about the person on the other side. They were giving the money because somebody like me was standing over them with a clipboard watching what they were doing and monitoring their behavior. And And it felt lousy to have someone like me looking at them and say, God, this guy, it's only over 10 bucks and this guy won't give a few bucks away to this other student? I mean, this is, what a horrible person. And, and I think ultimately, that's what you discover, what people are really doing is it's not about altruism, it's about the fact that people aren't just maximizing their material wealth, they're maximizing some kind of you know, self-image about, am I a good person or a bad person? And what's ironic about it is that, what makes me a good or bad person depends upon what my options are, right? If I give zero, and that's the worst thing I can do, then I'm a bad person. But if I can steal a dollar and I don't, I just give nothing, well then I'm not such a bad person after all. And that's what I think you see. And that's why I think when you do, when, when you, when you do the experiments on economists, undergrad economists, they tend to be very stingy. And I think it's not because they're that different from other, other students. I think it's because they know that their professors expect them to give nothing because that's what we teach them in their classes, is that economists would say that the right answer is to give nothing. And so they try to please the professors by giving nothing. And I think at Goldman Sachs, what I was seeing was there was tremendous peer pressure, right? It would be embarrassing if you're a trader. At the end of the day, you made five million bucks you say, God, I feel terrible. I took five million bucks from that guy. i got to find him and give him back a million dollars because that wasn't really fair. That would be embarrassing. And that's why at Goldman Sachs, I think a lot of those guys wanted to give away a few bucks, but they thought it would be embarrassing if they didn't. But John List had a problem because he had done this experiment with the idea of figuring out why people were giving in the lab but not on the subway. But he had, he had changed the experiment such that now uh, actually... He had created a bunch of thieves in the lab right? who were willing to steal the money, but I didn't get robbed the entire time I rode the subway in Boston. He hadn't really replicated the real world. And this is where John, this true genius, comes through. So he does another version of the experiment. He takes these students who unwittingly come in to play this dictator game, and he tells them, "Uh, I actually am going to need you to stuff envelopes for an hour before you play this game. It turned out he had another experiment, direct mail experiment, and he was killing two birds with one stone by making these students stuff these envelopes. So the student stuffed the envelopes for an hour, both the, the dictator and the person on the other side of the wall, and the dictator knows that, and then he plays the same dictator game from 10 to negative 10. And it turns out that the, the, the last remaining 15% of people who in that game had given away some of the money to the strangers disappeared. Nobody wanted to give the money away when they actually had to stuff the envelopes to get the $10 instead of getting it as a gift. But more interestingly, it turned out that almost nobody would take the strangers' money when they knew they had stuffed envelopes. So, so in the end, over 90% of all the people in this last game chose zero as the number that they preferred to give or to take in this game. So John List, in the end, had really created a situation in the lab which mimicked very much what happened on the Boston subway. People work hard for their money. They know other people work hard for their money. They more or less leave everybody. Everybody leaves each other alone. So... I want to be careful because people, some people, you know, so I've, I've, I've told this story in front of the um, Teach for America people. And, uh, and it kind of sickens them when I tell this story, right? Because here's Teach for America. You're spending two years of your life doing something good for other people. And then for me to say that people aren't good. So I don't want to, I want to make sure my message is clear. It's not that I think people are not altruistic. People, people are, we know, we have plenty of evidence that say within family, families, people are altruistic. When Hurricane Katrina hit, people were altruistic. Um, all I'm saying is this 20 years of economic research told us nothing about that, right? That, that somehow or another, the people doing this research just got confused about what the research meant, and it ended up being a complete waste of time. I just didn't, don't think it informed anything about uh, about altruism. Uh, but it always kind of leaves people, people angry and disappointed. A lot of people who, unlike who economists, who want to believe that people are, are kind-hearted. And so after I did this Teach for America talk, um, a couple days later, I got a, a letter in the mail, um, and it was a very strange letter because it had no return address um, on it, and it was written in pencil. The envelope was in pencil in block letters. Okay? And in the bottom corner of the letter, it says, "Very important." Okay, so I, you, if you read the book, you know a lot of people don't like me. You know, there's a whole big groups of society who don't like me at all. Uh, and who, who write threatening emails to me and whatnot. And so, of course, the first thing that comes into my head as I look at this is anthrax, right? This thing has just like the feel of anthrax. So my call, I call my wife over and I say, hey, Jeanette, could, could you open this letter for me? And, and she did. She opened the letter and I'm happy to report there's no traces of anthrax. Instead, uh, what it, inside was just a note. And it said, John Liszt is wrong. That's the, the full text of the letter. And tucked in with that was a $20 bill. Okay? And what this person was trying to say is that random acts of kindness that can't be traced back in any way, shape, or form to the donor happened all the time in the real world. And and here's an example of it. So, you know, I, I, I thought that was an interesting approach. And I, I'm an empirical economist. I, I'm, I'm driven by data. And uh, uh, my view is that, you know, I encourage all of you in this audience, if you think that John List is wrong, I would be happy to collect more data. And it's a 5622 South Woodlawn, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, and uh, please, uh, please don't don't forget about the importance of, of being part of, of research when it comes to that particular study. Let me let me take some qu- let me take questions. Uh, if anybody's got some questions, uh, and I don't know if we're going to do my I'll repeat the question you can't hear. There's a tall gentleman here in a blue shirt. well so so I, so it's an interesting point so right the the, the the model in which all people do is maximize their own financial wealth. They would take ten. Uh, the model, I think is the right model of the world is a model in which financial wealth gets some emphasis and some kind of kind of self image or what you more. some kind of moral factors also get some weight and and you can predict as an economist, you write down a model of what factors influence when people will put a lot of weight on morality, and when they won't. So for, I'll give you a good example. In front of my kids, I act much more moral than I do when I'm, say, alone in an airport in some you know, far away city and nobody knows who I am, right? And so, when w- scrutiny is a very big determinant of how uh, of how moral we act, you know, so it's not a coincidence when they pass the plate in church that there's no lid on the top of that thing, right? Because it, it turns out empirically that if people, other people can see more clearly how much you're putting in, you put a lot more money into the plate than you do otherwise. And so, uh, so in essence, I think what you see is that really the model of altruistic or not altruistic is kind of the wrong model of the world. Because I don't think any of this behavior relates to how we feel about the other person, right? Altruism suggests I actually care about the welfare of the other person. My view is that all of this behavior we're getting in the lab is how I feel about myself, um, and and so that it's really just uh, just not effective at all in, in testing that model. And If you want to test model of altruism, you got to do something different. You got to find a setting in which uh, in which you can kind of random, you know, figure out whether people. It's hard because right the thing that goes with altruism is if you make a target a target audience like more deserving you're not sure whether that's just playing on the, the moral qualms of the person or whether they care. I mean, but I think in general, you've got to have the belief that people just don't care very much about strangers, right? So, I mean, there are, you know, how do you know that? Well, people give a lot of money when Hurricane Katrina happens, and people gave next to nothing in the United States when there was a devastating earthquake in Pakistan, right? So... You know, just people didn't seem to care very much about the people in Pakistan. And I think it's partly because we responded to the media and the horrors of Hurricane Katrina. It it was not necessarily we weren't reacting because we cared about the people as much as we somehow, it was how it affected our own, our own self. So that's a good question. Thank you. Other questions, people? This crowd? And, yeah, here's one right here. yeah so um it's it's amazing what one kook uh can do um so there's one crazy lady uh who's on the school board in, in district two fourteen in the northern suburbs of Chicago who decided that a whole set of books should be banned okay and it's like a whole you know it's like a um, our book and um you know the a lot of the usual kinds of books that get banned but um uh uh but but not mostly not really even that offensive books and so someone said well what you know have you read these books and she readily admitted she had not read a single one of the books on the list and she didn't want to pollute her mind and so what's amazing is that um, this gets picked up by newspapers all over the place and it never had any chance of passing they hold this meeting and it turned out to be a very raucous meeting that went till two in the morning. And in the end, the school board voted nine to one not to ban any of these books. And so it was great for us. I mean, having your book banned as, a, as an author is the best possible thing <laughs> that can happen to you. Because then people actually suddenly think, well, this is worth reading. If somebody wants to ban it, this must be worth reading. So. Um, I think it's a classic case of this is a woman who didn't understand incentives, right? And so no one was going to read. You, you think any of the students are going to read my book anyway? I mean, they were going to read it in the first place. But but once they um, once they uh, once they, they decided they want to ban it, uh, we convinced the publisher to give away fifty or hundred free copies to um, to the kids in the school district. It created great publicity uh, all over the city of Chicago. We sold tons of books. It was, uh, it was it's, so uh, one thing economists have learned is that the way to get people to lower consumption is by raising price. That banning, you know, that they can, they're trying to do bans is usually not a very effective way. And this, this woman, if she were better trained as an economist, maybe she would read the book, she would have understood that uh, it was completely futile uh, what she was trying to do. I uh, still got time for more questions or no? Okay, one more question. How about right here? I a lot of real
0: estate agents, dealing with the conventional wisdom about, real real estate fees
1: yeah so the question is have I caught a lot of flack from real estate agents because of what uh, we say so first let me just for the people who don't know it so what the the um, one, one very simple and obvious point we're making the book is that uh, when an expert's incentives are not aligned with their customer the client then they might act in their own self-interest instead of that of the clients and, and real estate is a good example of that because let's say you're going to sell your house for an extra you had to wait an extra week, and you could sell your house for $10,000 more. Okay, uh, Almost anyone in this room would say, I'd be willing to wait a week to get $10,000 more from a house. Okay, so the real estate agent, well, well, what do they want to do? Well, So the agent gets 6% of the sale price of the house, but they've got to split that between the buyer's agent and the seller's agent, and then they've got to split that again between the agent and the company that employs them. So in the end, the agent's getting about 1.5% of the value of the house. So on the margin, that extra week it's worth $150. The extra week in the $10,000 is $150 in the pocket of the real estate agent. Now, the real estate agent, in the way the contract is structured, actually pays all the marketing costs and, and a lot of the time costs of open houses and showing the house. It's not at all clear that a self-interested agent would want to go ahead and keep that, that, that home on the market one more week. And you can imagine a, a, a selfish real estate agent might just try to convince their uh, client that that's a pretty good offer and they should take the first offer and not hold out for a better one. Okay, this is not just real estate agents it would be true. Uh, the evidence is that, we all know mechanics, tar mechanics are, are suspected of doing it. Doctors, it turns out, what evidence we can have, probably do it. But the bad news for realtors was that um, there's no way, you No know, doctors don't perform surgery on themselves. So it's really hard for me to figure out whether doctors are giving different kinds of treatment to themselves and their clients. But real estate agents in Illinois, when they sell homes, have to list that they have an ownership interest so we can collect hundred thousand home sales and you know there's a lot of information about the the nature of the home even down to the block Uh, and then we can see what happens when real estate agents sell their own homes versus when they sell their clients homes and what we saw in the data is that agents get two or three percent more for their own homes than they do for the clients homes controlling for other factors and and the agents will say, well, that's just because agents have you know, better taste and better choice of, uh, of colors and stuff like that. And so their homes sell better, sell, sell, sell for more. But the funny thing was that the, the agents left their homes on the market about 10% longer than their clients' homes stayed on the market. And it's really hard to come up with a model in which you have such great paint choices that nobody wants to buy your, your home for an extra 10% of the time. And so, so it's really hard to come up with a model that, that gives us other than the, the, sort of, the, the agents um, uh, uh, kind of on the margin pushing their clients to accept slightly worse offers than they themselves would accept. So did we get flack? So you can imagine we were not too popular with the National Association of Realtors after this came out. In fact, they put, wrote a letter to us, uh, and they put it on the front page of their webpage, and uh, they said how horrible we were and terrible stuff. And not only that... Uh, it turns out that the, the the MLS in Northern Illinois, which is the data I used, they began sending me emails asking me where I got the data. And I said, well, I got the data off your website. And they said, well, we're a member-only website. Uh, you're not allowed to access this data. And I said, actually, I had a member get the data for me. And I said, what, which member did that? And I said, unless there's some reason why I should tell you, I wasn't uh, actually uh, that that member would prefer to remain anonymous. And they said that member is this is like this is over months. I'm condensing like six months of legal uh, 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 wrangling into into two minutes. And so they said, okay. Then they say, well, and they say, what form was the data in? What form did you get the data? And I said, uh, tab delimited text file. Okay, I didn't hear from them a while after that, but I didn't figure that was going <laughs> to solve my problems. And uh, eventually they said, uh, again, they said, Who you, we're going to file lawsuit against you unless you tell us which member gave you the data. I said, if you will give me, uh, uh, if you show me where in the contract that the member has signed they violated the rules, I would be happy to tell you. Anyway, this goes on and on, increasingly threatening letters. Now, the, the best part of all of this, and it goes back to conventional wisdom and lawyers is that this was all about this academic paper I'd written. And the way you do academic papers, you got this title page. It's got the title of your article and the name of the authors, and then you have acknowledgments. So on the front page of this article we've been railing about for six months, in the acknowledgments it says, we would like to thank Thomas Fumo for providing all the real estate data used in this paper. <laughs> But the lawyers for the, for the MLS had never actually bothered to read the paper that they found so uh, offensive. And eventually they stopped writing me. I think they figured out that, uh, I think they finally decided to read the paper. And, that was, uh, and, and since then, um, uh, I haven't uh, I heard too much. The thing that saves me with real estate agents is that almost any agent you talk to will say, that is just, uh, you know, I would never, ever do something like that. My bond with my client is much stronger. But you wouldn't believe the people I deal with on a daily basis. I mean, I see this behavior all the time. And it's funny how every real estate agent sees it all the time, but has never done it uh, themselves. Well, I, I think I've used up my time. And it was really, really a pleasure uh, having you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.